Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Our longtime listeners will recall way back in 2018, we did a short series on Mozart. Well, it's time we revisited such a famous and prolific musician. So today, we'll be coming back to Mozart, looking into the overture to his opera La Clemenza di Tito, or The Clemency of Titus. So if you'd like an in-depth look at Mozart's life, you can listen to our series that started on episode 52. It's a three-part series. But for today, let's start by setting the scene for this opera's composition. It was written in 1791 and is one of the last works completed by Mozart during his lifetime. He was already hard at work with his more famous opera, The Magic Flute, and was also working on his Requiem, which was not finished while he was alive. Bohemia, with its capital at the time being Prague, was preparing for the coronation of a new emperor, King Leopold II. In preparation for the coronation day festivities, a certain impresario named Domenico Gardasoni approached Mozart with the commission for a celebratory opera. Apparently, Gardasoni and Mozart had been in discussions for Mozart to write a new opera for a few years now, but nothing had come of it until this time. When Mozart was approached with this commission, it was already July of 1791, and the premiere of the opera was due to be in early September of that year. Not much time to write a whole opera. But nonetheless, Mozart took the job, and it did pay handsomely. It was incredibly vogue to write pieces based on the ancient Romans, which, as we'll get into, is exactly what Mozart did here. And of course, the Enlightenment era was all about exploring the world through rational thought. As the general public, or at least the middle and upper classes, embraced these ideas, they of course expected their governments to reflect those ideals as well. Keep in mind, just as our new Bohemian emperor is being crowned, the French are in the midst of their revolution, which encompassed basically the entire decade of the 1790s. As we mentioned, Mozart was already working on his magic flute during the same time period, and that opera is chock full of Enlightenment ideals, so we already know that Mozart was a big fan of this movement. So in selecting his story for this opera, he turned to a classic work that had actually been set as an opera several times prior. The version of the Clemency of Titus that Mozart turned to was a libretto by Pietro Metastasio that was then revised by Caterino Mazzola. According to Mozart, Mazzola's reworking of the libretto made it, quote, a real opera, suggesting that he had some disdain for the previous renditions of the story. This story was picked as it focuses on a wise and benevolent ruler, Titus, who puts aside his own wants and needs for the sake of his friends, much to the joy of his subjects. And this type of thinking was enlightened as it shows contemplation, level-headedness, and human compassion. Hopefully, the new emperor of Bohemia would see himself reflected in the character of Titus. Now, as this is an opera, the plot itself is a bit convoluted and far-fetched. So, here we go. (laughs) Titus is the new emperor and is planning to marry. The daughter of the previous emperor, Vitellia, wants Titus to marry her so she may win back the throne. However, Titus doesn't love her. He loves Servilia. 
and for the context of how these two may have met, Servilia is the sister of Titus's friend, Sesto. Now this all seems fine, except Servilia doesn't love Titus. She loves another random guy, Anyo. Titus learns of this just before he proposes to Servilia, and being the enlightened and kind ruler he is, decided to not marry Servilia, so she may happily go marry her true love. The trouble comes in when Vitilia has decided to just kill Titus and comes up with an assassination plot, and worse yet, she then ropes Titus's own friend Sesto into the plot. However, just before this plot is to spring into action, Vitilia learns Titus is yet again single, having given up Servilia, and she decides to call off the plot in hopes that now Titus will just settle and marry her. Unfortunately, she is unable to get word to Sesto about this change of plans, and Sesto goes forward, essentially setting the capital city on fire with the hopes that Titus will not survive. And so it seems that he did die at the end of Act 1. Moving on into Act 2, we learn that Titus has survived, and Vitellia has gotten a hold of Sesto, finally telling him he should not have gone forward with the assassination plan. Everyone feels bad, and Sesto confesses. Titus is taken aback by the confession and also feels bad, as he doesn't want to commit his friend to the death penalty, which is the punishment for such a crime. And so far, Sesto has kept Vitellia's part in all this a secret, so he will take all the blame. Titus prays to the gods that if he has to make these kinds of heartless decisions, they should just take his heart away, and we are now wondering what he will decide. The sentencing finally comes around, and fearing for Sesto's life, Vitilia also confesses that she actually came up with the plot. Titus is again taken aback, however he reveals that he was going to forgive Sesto and let him live. At this new revelation, Titus also forgives Vitilia, so everyone is happy and the crowds rejoice at how benevolent their ruler is. Now, one of the main critiques of this opera is that nothing much happens on stage. It's not exactly a spectacle, like many of the more popular operas. At the time of the premiere of the coronation, it was also not very well received. This could partly be due to poor performance quality. Mozart had finished the score a mere days prior to the performance, thus giving everyone very little time to actually learn their parts. However, it also just didn't seem to be to the liking of the royals. Empress Maria Luisa, who was in attendance, famously commented it was merely a piece of, quote, German swinishness. After its premiere, and after the cast had been performing it for longer and knew their parts, it did receive more favorable reviews. After Mozart's death in December of 1791, his wife Costanza made an effort to have Mozart's work still performed, and she did champion this particular opera. In spite of her efforts, it still, though, remains one of the more obscure and disliked of Mozart's operas. But that's not to say the writing is bad. It's a lovely example of the classical style that Mozart was so good at, and we will now explore in the overture. As we all know, Mozart's writing is a perfect example of the classical era artistic style. One thing that really defined this particular style is the emphasis on symmetry and uniformity. Now remember that classical actually got its name from looking back to the classic times of the Greeks and Romans, and people during this time period wanted to model their art and architecture after what they saw from history, such as the grand stately columns of the Parthenon and the simplicity of vases, etc. 
From the onset of this overture, we get a lovely symmetry that's based on the C major chord. It's the first thing we hear. And then Mozart outlines the chord with unison notes throughout the orchestra that are brought in by a little fanfare. Until we finally land back on the same C major chord we heard just seven measures ago, with just very slight alterations to some of the octaves throughout the orchestra. And to top it all off, the very end of the piece mirrors this symmetry. However, the orchestra is all playing a unison C rather than a whole triad. But though we have gone through a whole slew of exposition and development, Mozart still brings us home to the same place where we started. Moving on from the introduction, Mozart introduces our first theme. It's quite simple, just a set of staccato eighth notes played on the beat in a down-and-up pattern. But a simple theme makes for wonderful opportunities for counterpoint. As we hear immediately in the development section, the sparseness of the main theme allows for complex countermelody. As the theme is passed around the orchestra in this section, you can also hear the sequencing and modulation possibilities with this theme seem to be endless as we hear iteration after iteration. Also in our exposition section, Mozart has provided a second theme. This is played out with the first statement in the flutes and oboes, and the second statement is answered by the lower bassoons. It's a very nice use of orchestral color. While Mozart had turned to counterpoint to expand on theme 1 in the development section, he utilizes changing the orchestral color to explore this second theme. He changes the instrumentation from having the upper woodwinds of the flute and oboe to actually having the full double reed section of the oboe and bassoon. And this is then answered by the flute and clarinet. Up to this point, most of the piece has been emphasizing the downbeat. For a fun change in rhythmic texture, in the development, Mozart throws in some diminished chords that are emphasized with syncopation. We hear an entire eight-bar phrase worth of offbeats played in the strings, while the woodwinds play quarter half-note quarter, which emphasizes beat two rather than beat one. And to signal we've gotten to the end of the development and are reaching the recapitulation section, Mozart introduces the same C major chords we heard at the beginning. However, this time he adds fermatas of the rest between the chords to give us slightly more time to ponder their sounds. Something 
Mozart has done both in the exposition and now in the recapitulation of the first theme is utilize repetitive downward scales to build up the drama. He starts with just the second violins and violas playing a simple downward scale, but then the rest of the orchestra gradually joins in, both in unison and in various harmonic intervals away from the original. addition of instruments and harmonies really gives the feeling of the sound expanding around the listener. When played from an orchestral pitch, the sound would seem to blossom outward in a really lovely way. And as we round out into the finale, Mozart ramps up his use of little decorative runs. Throughout the work, in the background, downbeats have been emphasized by little pickup triplet 32nd notes, essentially written out grace notes. But here in the grand finale, Mozart goes overboard with them. Almost every beat gets a little decoration added on. We hope you've enjoyed tagging along with us as we revisited Mozart. For such a prolific composer, it's great to look at a lesser-known piece that you might not have already heard. And if you have somebody in your life that has not already heard the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, do consider recommending us to them as we always love connecting with new listeners. And while you're at it, go ahead and drop a follow on Spotify if that's where you're listening, or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Mozart's overture to La Clemenza di Tito was performed by the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony, conducted by Jason Weinberger. You can find the coffee house on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.